How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 197. Oh, it's a special number, Zeke. It is. 1997 babies we are. We both are. You are already 25, and I am fastly approaching it. <laughs> <laughs> Does it feel fast? Around the yeah. corner, Zeke? Yeah, it's been a long year, I think. So by the time 25 ticks over, we were just talking about before the show, where mm. it's like... When people are asking you, what are you doing for it? And you're like, I just haven't thought about it, to be honest. And <laughs> it's now under three weeks, just over three weeks away. So oh. here we are. I mean, it's exciting, though. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, is it exciting? I mean, I'm not like... I think it'll be... <laughs> yeah. uh, there'll be a lot to celebrate when it happens, because I would have finished university. Yes. And, you know... There's external factors. There are a lot, of, a lot of things playing on the next few weeks. So, yeah. we'll see. Playing at the movies. Is that what you mean? Well, that's at the mo- end of the show, Jack. Oh, I see. We're, jump- we're jumping ahead a bit. How are you doing? I'm good. I apologize profusely for my voice if it sounds... Does it sound... Sounds pretty good. It doesn't sound bad? Yeah, we're not at that raspy level. Well, I, see, the raspy's good because that's the feel like you've been sick for a while and you kind of got that nice, mm. deep, sexy, raspy voice. And I've kind of got the prepubescent voice thing going on right now. Well, I skipped the sickness. I just went straight to losing my voice for some reason. <laughs> I say for some reason, it was probably because I was singing at a wedding at my friend Bree's wedding this past Saturday, which arises a funny story. I said to you, Zeke, I, would, I wouldn't tell you this story until we jumped on the podcast because it's very reminiscent of a, a short film you directed at uni mm. that involved a, a character who had to make it to a wedding and their car broke down on the way to the wedding. See, uh, the 2020 film hitched. Is it 2020? Well, we shot it in 2019. It was a third okay, year 20, film. 2019. Did film. it ever, like, it didn't actually, like, officially release, did it? I don't know if it's online. I have a link. <laughs> and oh, okay. To be honest, I probably should put it on. You might as well. You might as well. On the, uh, the ZKJ website. It's just never made it. Mm. I don't think, you know, to be honest, I don't know even if Cascade or Puncture films they aren't my films they're power play production sure, films but i don't sure. think they're even public yeah i mean yeah, i would have to we, check in with with cassie about those two films because we I were was, both pretty onto that with like releasing our stuff online and getting links up and promoting it and, and i think we just kind of like not not drop the ball that's not the word but like i think we just both stopped caring about it after a while yeah yeah. I think it's, it also comes back to when you're not like... Because obviously with Hitched, it was such a sort of a, a rough um, ending. Mm. It, by the time it was time to probably release it publicly, it just never got that, that public release. Sure. Um, but Let's make a dirty joke right now. So, but yes, reminiscent. <laughs> Tell your story, Jake. No, well, it is because... And this has never happened to me before. Me and Kirsty were driving down. It was a you know south, down south wedding. So, you know, taking the freeway for a bit. We were only like... I think our map said 14 minutes away from the actual location. So, we still had quite a bit of the freeway to go. Um, before, as you know, as you do when you're driving, your car sort of veers, you know, left or right onto one of the white lines. and goes... And you're like, oh, crap, like... Those things exist just to sort of wake you up so you don't veer too far off the road. This is the sole purpose of these things. Yes. The purpose is not for it to explode your tire, but alas, that's apparently what happened because immediately my steering was just crooked. I was just, I was holding the thing like all the way to the right just to stay straight. I was like, 
so, something's happened. So we immediately had to pull over, and yeah, my front left tire pancaked. So we were stranded oh. in the middle of the freeway. But it was a wee. You went by yourself. No, that is true. And I probably... I don't know if I would have freaked out, but it, you're right. It makes a huge difference when you're with someone. Of course. Um, so we, we immediately went to... Because I didn't care about the car. I was like, I can leave the car here for two days for all I care. But it's my friend's wedding. I don't want to miss my friend's wedding. Yes. Yeah, and, and we we're on schedule, and now we're very quickly coming out of schedule. <laughs> Um, so we looked at Uber and of course they were going to charge us like $120 to, for a 14 minute drive. So I was like, well, that's not really an option. And anyway, what, what ended up happening is cause, uh, my mum was closer than, than Kirsty's mum in proximity. So we gave her a call. We swapped cars. So she came down, gave me her car. So we drove to the wedding and she was able to, you know, get, just arrange the RSC to come replace the tire. Cause I had a spare. Mm-hmm. It's important, everyone. Absolutely. To, to, if you if you don't know how to change a tire, which, uh, like, it was kind of an awakening moment for me. I was like, I should really know how to change a tire. But also the RSC, like, they come in and go with their tools and they're done. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not like David Banner, the Hulk, trying to <laughs> fix a tire in the rain and one wrong move and I turned into a big green monster, which would have been a great segue if not we had more uh, things to talk about before what we've been watching the last week, but. Um, more importantly, I think the RSCs are, they're a good service. So I, we made it just in time for the, for the ceremony. In fact, apparently they like halted the ceremony when they saw our car coming. Cause we, I did, um, well, I messaged Brie fully expecting her to be way too busy, busy being a bride to, you know, notice my message. She actually called to make sure we were okay. And, um, so she, as soon as she saw the car approaching, stop, 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 stop. And. They waited for us before the ceremony continued. We didn't want to be the center of attention, Zeke. Yes. Never. 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 You don't want to take the attention away from the bride and groom when you attend a wedding. <laughs> Never. But you didn't. I hope not. <laughs> they stopped the entire ceremony for us. So <laughs> other than that, oh my goodness. Anyway, that was my Hitched-esque story I wanted to tell you on the podcast. Yeah, we should make a movie about it. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a Hitch 2 Yes. The wheel strikes again. What was your character's name? Ronnie? Was it? Ronnie? I was Ronnie. <laughs> I forget I'm in that movie. <laughs> I star in it. Yeah. That's my legacy. Is, yeah. Is well, that was your last like acting role, really. Yeah, I like, think proper so. Yeah. Role. I, I definitely haven't acted. No. No. I can't think. No, I can't think <laughs> of any other. It destroyed your career. It, I, <laughs> that was my one. It's like Mike Myers doing the uh, the Love Guru. Yes. Except he's in Amsterdam now, I think. So he's back in movies, I think. Okay. Yeah. Didn't really know. resuscitate his career, but... No. <laughs> not really. No. Uh, that was a long tangent, Zeke. I apologize. No, uh, that's, we... that is A-OK, my friend. Mm. Do you have a fact from the film of the week? I do. See how they run. I do. You didn't quite run away with it. No, no. But I will, I will talk a bit about the title, See How They Run, and where it originates from. Because I will admit... Watching the film, I wasn't a hundred percent. I didn't. I was, I was like, I don't get the reference. Is it to do with see how they run? Is in like a criminal? How does a criminal run away? I thought it was a whole tie there. It actually goes a lot deeper than that. So the film is heavily based around Agatha Christie's real life play, which is of course entitled The Mouse Trap, which itself is based on a nineteen forty seven short radio play entitled Free Blind Mice, that was written as a birthday present for Queen Mary, which is ironic because the initial nursery rhyme free blind mice 
Apparently, they're meant to represent pro uh, Protestant loyalists accused of plotting against the Queen. So there's a whole sort of tie right there, but if we look further at the nursery rhyme, it says, free blind mice, free blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. So that's a deep cut for a title for mm. this movie. <laughs> About three Protestants. That's really interesting. I was a Protestant. Yes. I said Protestant. Protest okay. ant. That's what I should have said. What about you, Zig? What's your fun fact for the film? Well, at the end of the key plot point, uh, there's a arrangement, a top-down shot um, of a collection of cups of tea. And, of course... Ah, uh, yes, yes. There is a misguided uh, rotation of the Lazy Susan that they sit on, and this leads to the death of a character. Mm. This is actually copied from one of Christie, Agatha Christie's novels, uh, Curtain. Uh, where a similar death occurs. So there's a lot of ties to Agatha Christie uh, yes. fandom, uh, novella fandom, I guess. Mm. Um, plays this, that, and the other. And this film is very meta in a lot of ways mm. and very uh, self-aware. So um, we can dive into it in the second half of the show if that's intellectual self-awareness or sure. is it uh, a little bit more surface-level uh, style of a substance, but... Oh, it'll be interesting. Little tease, but Zeke, yes, does that tease impact your opinion of whether this film should be on the eleven hundred films you must watch at least once in your lifetime poster behind you? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. I mean, okay. I didn't hate the film. Um, Gosh, no. And it actually does do some really some good things. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, we can jump into. It. What about you, Jake? Yeah, no, I I probably wouldn't put it on my list either. Um. There is, and and I, I tried segueing earlier, it wasn't going to work. I'll do it again here. I think for me, uh, no matter how self-referential and self-aware a film may be, if it still commits to those same ideas and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tropes, if you will. doesn't necessarily make it a better film. Much like the show I finally finished watching this past week, She-Hulk! Ha-ha! Oh, boy. There's my tie. I got a lot in there with the... The David Banner and everything, the car. Yeah. Such and such and such. Um, I will say this, Zeke. Yes. Because you, you recall, I watched the first two episodes when they when they first, I was going to say aired, I guess dropped on Disney Plus mm-hmm. is more accurate. And I, I loathed the show. I thought it was horrendous. I thought the writing was very bad. I thought everything was very ham-fisted. Nothing made sense. The character um, portrayals of not just the characters, but like, portrayal of women in general like i just thought that was all like really really awful <laughs> i will say my my stance has softened slightly after watching the remainder of the next seven episodes now that it's all said and done i don't i wouldn't say i hate the show anymore there's enough in there i'm like okay whatever it's like it commits to it sort of you know uh women in mid-30s trying to date uh sex in the city-esque style or um not style but what's the word i'm looking for like that, that aesthetic. I I don't know what the word is, but like that genre, subgenre yeah. of of which you know, I think Marvel's done okay at sort of creating subgenres within a lot of their larger films, where they have you know your political thrillers and your space operas, and like there's all those different genres within different Marvel films, and this just sort of adds to the pile. I get that, and I don't mind a lot of that stuff. That's where a couple of the the honest to god laughs and chuckles that I had in the show came from. Is like. Mm. Things that would have been in literally any other non-superhero version of this TV show. 
I think what you've raised there is a good mm. point that that this is just that particular sort of subgenre, that mm. sort of um, contemporary uh, sitcom drama, yeah, basically, or comedy drama that that the Sex and the City sort of series follows. Yeah. And of course, unfortunately, that doesn't mean it caters to everyone. Um, no, and, certainly not a Marvel de- audience. Definitely not a Marvel <laughs> audience, and. What do you, what, 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 I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, there. that's all right. Um, I think that that is an important point to bring up with it. That uh, do we criticize them for trying to be a little different, mm-hmm. trying to set this apart and make it a distinctive property? Um, I don't think we should critique that side. The problem is that they'll then try and bring characters in. They'll try and bring a character like her, who's mm. in this kind of bubbly, sort of more comedic world, yeah, and trying to put her then in a in a civil war situation <laughs> where everything's dead to rights. That's going to be fascinating. That is going to be so fascinating. And it's like, I guess you could go, oh, well, don't they do something like that with Ant Man? I'm like, so, well, sort of. I think it's the Paul Rugg delivery that helps give it that balance. Yeah. And but be- that but that's it cuz like the subgenre in Ant-Man is is, you know, fun heist movie, Ocean's 11 sort of thing. So even though the character's quite silly and, you know, fun and and I guess outgoing or whatever, they they find a way to wedge him into these the group movies because from a character perspective, he's like fanboying over everyone. Like, oh my god, I'm meeting Captain America and all these other Oh my god. Um but then in terms of the style, it's like okay, well he's still a skilled um, you know, I don't want to use the word superhero, but yeah, like, I think they do pretty well with like Endgame, trying to mm, bring like him merge those characters and their skills, and it all plays together. Like, yeah, you know, we joke about like Black Widow, like how does she, how does she fight Thanos? You know, we, we joke about that kind of stuff. They always make it work somewhere or another, whether they go up against yeah. him directly or. Uh, the thing with She Hulk though is because I think a lot of people point out that she breaks the fourth wall, where she talks to the camera, makes comments, and. I've seen a lot of video essays of people being like, this doesn't work. It works in Deadpool, but it doesn't work here. And never go on to elaborate why. I'm like, okay. Uh, this is the weird thing. I don't like... I think the show's very poor overall. Mm. I I don't hate it like a lot of people do. But then I watch these video essays of people be like, here's why She-Hulk sucks. And almost all the points they make are actually not the reason that I hate the show. Like, I don't think the fact that she talks to the camera is... How well, is that different from Deadpool? Because not even Deadpool. I mean, isn't that... That's in Birds of Prey, too. Harley Quinn does it, too. Yes, exactly. And, and I actually think it works great in Birds of Prey. So... We can disagree on that, but... <laughs> oh, I don't hate Birds of Prey. Like, sure. not like... Not like the visceral hate that's come out of the She-Hulk show. <laughs> that's a different... Yeah. That's a different breed. That's a whole ballpark, is. yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think fourth wall... I mean, we're going to talk about fourth wall breaking and, yes. and its um, effectiveness... And when used correctly, or is it just a style of substance thing? Mm. With the fourth wall breaking thing, though it's not, I don't find it a problem that a character like her breaks the fourth wall. Is it effective in what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, it's weird because I think that's where I get a little confused with what the show is trying to achieve because it does that whole thing where it is sort of self critiquing, uh, not only like a, a general seasonal arc of a sitcom in terms of like, ah, oh, and today, the, this week's going to be the wedding episode, and she's aware that it's a TV show, and that's going to be the wedding episode, and makes jokes about like, oh, I know you want a daredevil, you thought this was going to be the episode, but weddings are not convenient, so that's why we're putting it here. Like, there's that self awareness that the character's saying, but then in the last episode, they just go crazy, and I will, for whoever wants to consider a spoiler, I don't really care. I know you're not going to 
sit down and be like, oh, Jake, how could you spoil this? But the whole thing is that the plot actually gets so out of hand that it just ends with the She-Hulk literally breaking out of the little bubble in the Disney Plus menu. I've seen then, screenshots. Okay, yeah. But And then she breaks into Marvel Studios and talks to Kevin Feige, who's a robot, and basically, like, mocks all of the MCU tropes of how the third act always has to have, like, this big bombastic fight and all the cameos, even though the show is still doing all of those things anyway, so it's just self-critiquing without doing anything about it. Mm. And it's like... I don't mind that in theory. I'm not going to hate the show because of that. It's getting weirdly South Parky, isn't it's it? It's getting weirdly South Parky, and like you said, <laughs> like you said, when she ends up being in an Avengers film, you know, six years down the line or whatever, because she will be. How are they going to do that? Is she still going to be talking to the camera between fighting Thanos 2.0, who's now gold? Yeah, <laughs> he's going to be a gold. And Thanos. I think that that uh, people need to have that key uh, distinction. It's like like you said it's uh, people maybe are looking at it the wrong way mm. where it's like it works with Deadpool because Deadpool's this lone entity like right. like this Hugh Jackman coming back to be in this third Deadpool movie oh, is yeah. an isolated have we talked about that? no we haven't <laughs> I still haven't seen the trailers I don't really I, I just assumed it was a joke but I think it's not a joke it, no it's real it's the the things they put out of just Ryan Reynolds on a couch being like hey guys I'm Ryan Reynolds which I'm kind of sick of, to be honest, but he does the whole thing of, like, oh, we've been trying to wrap wrap our brains around what Deadpool 3 is going to be, and, yeah. you know, after after years of melling over, and we've got nothing. We can't think of anything. And then Hugh Jackman walks in the background, and he's like, hey, you want to be in Deadpool 3? Yeah, okay, whatever. And that that's, like, the thing. But it's, it's, he's going to be in it's it. It's funny, because you bring up the Ryan Reynolds, like, I, I'm kind of getting sick of this, this so, like like making fun of everything around them persona yeah and i know that obviously there was a whole thing that came out with what was it jt miller was like apparently he was very rude and bullied him on the first set yeah um that was a whole thing but that got swept under the rug it felt like pretty quick yeah um (laughs) and it's like i've now ryan you know i i've been watching i finished the first season of welcome to wrexham which centers around Obviously, Rob McElhenney and Rob Ryan Reynolds sort of owning this fifth-tier football league club. Now, yeah. that, first, that was a great season of sort of sports drama meets that celebrity comedy stuff. Mm. But, geez, it sometimes felt very um, combing of the ego for particularly the two uh, Hollywood actors okay. um, yeah. who buy a, who keep trying to talk about this enriching experience. But... They only appear occasionally. And you get really... you get actually really drawn into the football club ethos and this team trying to get out of League 5 into League 2 because the finances go up. And yeah. you actually buy... And they do have amazing coverage over the town of Wrexham, like these people investing in the club. Mm. And you get caught with their stories. You really enjoy their stories. Yeah. And the individual players that they're following. And then you'll see Rob McElhenney or Ryan Reynolds just kind of ham fist themselves into the story like oh we're still here yeah we own this club oh it's we're just trying to and they kept trying it's almost like they were trying to peddle like this world vision sort of like Mm. oh look how much we're trying to change the town like we're trying to bring this town back to life through this football club and it's such an enriching experience yeah putting they go to wales like yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like it just felt like it feels like the most actor story and to be honest it's like from a exposure point of view an endorsement point of view and 
like financial point they are improving it but it's the I have to compare it to the second season of um, Sunderland Till I Die, which is, follows okay. the Sunderland Football Club. And they go under new management. And these two guys, they're business people. And they try and do the same sort of thing, but they don't make it about them up until a certain point. But then the documentary is aware that they're starting to make it about them mm. and actually starts critiquing them for okay. the, the, the documentary maker. Whereas it feels like the documentary maker in... Welcome to Wrexham is totally happy filling, just doing whatever Rob and Ryan want Yeah, from uh, an artistic, creative point of view. So there's a lot of Ryan being Ryan. And that's, that's to, to quote Bill Burr talking about, was it Steve Jobs? He was talking about, he's just, I just don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and just it's like, it just, it feels so, you know, I think that's what it is. Zeke. I think the fact that Ryan Reynolds is sort of, found this persona because he's done other films but like yeah. Barry you look at something like Barry he's like, he does a very serious role and he behaves very differently than that but now that he's like he did this Deadpool thing and he sort of rose it from the grave mm-hmm. people loved it when they you know the leaked footage went out and people loved the first Deadpool film and yada 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 I think like at that point he just cemented himself as like okay well this is going to be my personality now because that's what people are attracted to yeah. and now that's just literally all he presents it's not a character anymore it's him which just feels fake. It feels really fake. Yeah, well, I actually read up on the JT Miller things and he mm. made a comment where it's like he ironically makes fun of focus group people, but he feels like the most focus group personality <laughs> around. <laughs> like people just generated, they wanted a smarmy, witty, but likable D-bag. Yeah. And then this... That's the we, manifestation of, of all those We things. created it. And yeah. I'll admit, in the Wrexham show, I will definitely watch the second season because there's enough to go back to. Sure. And I do actually think Rob is actually quite compelling, McElhenney. It's more Ryan, who has all, most of the... He's mostly bankrolling it. Definitely feels disjointed from uh, the sport. Um, and definitely feels like he's sort of done it more as that publicity side. Whereas, like, oh, boy. Rob McElhenney and... Um, he definitely seems to have that more earnestness to him. He actually loves sport and it's a shame that he didn't spend more time in Wales than Ryan did because it, I feel like he would have actually, if he really, they really wanted to be immersed in that culture, they would have just stayed there for six to 10 months mm. and just committed to it because financially it's like they could afford to do that. Right. But they didn't really want to, I don't think. And that's why it makes it very tough to be like, they're in it for the right reasons, but it's very like quotation marks, yeah, philanthropist ways rather mm. than actually getting stuck into the the club and the ethos and of the community. So, um, good season, mm. um, and sort of ties in with this. This, yeah, I, yeah. I don't give a crap about Deadpool three, and I mean, She Hulk has just been it's been a bonfire, hasn't it? Like they've had to push everything back now in response to. Continuous I, runs of negative press. Now they've pushed everything back, haven't they? Uh, yeah, they pushed everything back. I I guess that's a correlation. I never really thought about that to be honest, but it's not just this. Uh, it's not just She Hulk. I'm talking about it. Oh uh, yeah, multiverse. Four like, got trashed. I think Doctor Strange got trashed. I mean, I thought Doctor Strange was crap. Um, I haven't. I still haven't seen four any of that. And Moon Nine and. I saw, there was a video. It just came up in my recommended where it was like the like a minute of Moonlight. Like the just watch the visual effects. And I was like blown away. I was like I didn't realize how horrible 
some of these VFX shots look. Um, when you actually watch it, just pay attention. And I and you know we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the you know Life After Pi documentary and a lot of that, you know the mistreatment of CGI artists, especially who are working under Marvel. Um, I hope they get all the time in the world to figure this stuff out because at this point no one wins the fact is no one wins with the current system that's in play no one wins because yeah marvel are just going to slowly bleed money because people are going to lose interest in these shows that of which the quality is getting increasingly worse or i should just say decreasing continuously and you've got cgi artists who are also bleeding in terms of emotional investment in this stuff because the money is beside the point otherwise you wouldn't do any of this anymore half the studio is going bankrupt and everyone who's watching the shows are like, oh, well, this sucks. This used to be good, but now it sucks. Mm. So no one wins anymore. So this could be a good thing if Marvel going to push everything back just a little bit. I know it was a thing with Blade. I think they're swapping directors. I think Mahershala Ali's not happy with scripts. I, I know there's things like that going on as well, but I don't know. I just I just could not. I couldn't care less anymore. Yeah. I, I finished it because my TV time app was like, that you still got to finish She-Hulk, and I was like, yeah, oh, okay, and, fine. and it's just sitting there. Yeah, it's annoying. It let me to finally watch the last, the latest few episodes of Rick and Morty as well, which I'm having a lot more fun with. I'm, I'm with you on what you said a few weeks ago, Zeke. With the it's fun lack of a portal gun, it just kind of feels fresh again. Have you watched episode six though? I've seen the first four. Okay, so I haven't seen episode. I, I know, I know he's like going to get it back, and things are going to change again. I yeah. know that's going to happen. Starts to, I think, yeah. Um, but it's good. Honestly, I actually have liked all six episodes. Nice. And you're at that point where you're kind of ready. Um, you, you, it's still quite interesting and, and entertaining and entertaining enough, but I'm glad you've, you've caught the first four. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's like, you've got your horror episode, you've got your Thanksgiving episode. Like it, it you're right. It kind of feels back to basics. It's a bit more character driven mm-hmm. with the two Beths and whatnot. God. Um, <laughs> actually, you know, I actually love the first episode a lot because they were all sort of sent back to their respective, um, like universes. Yeah. We didn't see Jerry's, did we? No. Unless I'm getting mixed up with someone else, but. Um, but then there's a few throwaway lines in there that are like, it it wasn't that long in terms of the show time. Like a lot of the references from like season two and season three, but I like when like Jerry disappears and everyone's like, wait, why is Jerry disappear? He's like, oh, the the post credit scene from the season two episode, and that's what this means. And he was actually the wrong Jerry. And I was like, oh, I love that stuff because this is so throwaway, yeah. but it rewards you for remembering those those jokes. Because they were jokes at the time. It's like, ah, oh, I picked the wrong Jerry. Oh, who cares? And then four seasons later, it's like, oh, that's what that was. But it's throwaway. They don't make a whole yeah. episode around it. I love a lot of that stuff. It's fun. So I'll watch the, the last two episodes tonight. And then I think it comes back next month. So Yeah, on yeah. November 14th is episode seven. Yeah, sweet. But that's mostly all I've been watching is catching up on those shows. Um, what else you been watching, Zeke? I know you've seen a few things. Yeah, so I, I wrapped up the the sports docuseries The Last Dance, which I've yep. talked about a couple of times. Uh, that's a 10-episode series following the, the Chicago Bulls dynasty over the 90s, particularly Michael Jordan and sort of the main players in that. And that was really interesting. I've talked about it mostly pretty extensively in previous weeks. I won't go into too much more of that. Sure. I did finish the GameStop Saga yep. miniseries, uh, which I sort of sat pretty much where you sat with it. Um, I didn't. I didn't even give it a rating. Yeah, I was sort of. I just. <laughs> it was fine. It yeah. was. It was inter- interesting enough. I think. Uh, 
sort of talking about that free market and, mm. and trading and stuff and how um, they were deprived of that or, or how they weren't supposed to go the way they went was all interesting enough. But it, like you said, we don't actually see anyone that wins a bet. Well, we see people that are minor winners, but we don't see any mega winners. Yeah, which there definitely were. Yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. Definitely were. And it, I think it's a shame this doco just couldn't, I guess, find those people. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just... I I do like... Uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't go that far, I feel like, because those stories do exist. And you have the whole thing with um, Robin Hood and the fact that they got rid of the buy button and like all that stuff, which is just like insane. It's just like that is definitive proof. Like, we've joked... We've done many jokes on this show, Zeke. Like, ah, oh, the self-proclaimed capitalist, that kind of thing. Mm. And it's like, that when that happened at the start of, I think, last year, that generally shook any and all belief I had in, like, capitalism. Because it's not, it's not, it's not a belief on capitalism as in, like, oh, it's a perfect system. It's like, no, it's going to be manipulated by people over and over and over again. And I think I've seen that kind of manipulation that was showed in this documentary. And I remember it happening, just like, I'm losing all faith in this because it's like, it really is rigged. You can't have one day of people using the stock market and playing, you know, lack of a better word, the rich people's games against mm. them without it just bouncing back. I mean, it's like the housing market when it was all just, like, fixed. Oh, there's no real problem here. We just bailed everyone out. It's fine. There's, there's a lot of problems there. So it, I like that it kind of explored that, but it could have gone away deeper, but it is, it is what it is. But, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it enough i guess yeah yeah it was engaging enough um the only other things of course i actually managed to tick over to 100 films uh this oh, week for the for year the, for the year nice uh unique films um i managed to catch you need films you yes. need you need them <laughs> you just need them Zeke. you need the unique <laughs> um and that was i caught egger's latest film the northman um Ooh. so that was uh i believe that was or I majorly caught this week. But yeah, um, caught that. Dropped on Prime and Binge simultaneously, I believe. It did, yeah. So I I caught that in the last uh, uh, week or so. And and yeah, I I did enjoy it. Mm. I didn't enjoy it as much as The Lighthouse. Sure, Um, yeah. It's it's certainly not as good as The Lighthouse. I think it's quite an interesting sort of... There are there are things to like about it. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think the uh, everyone. I mean, most people seem pretty positive on it, which is always very interesting. Um, I, I definitely like. I think the scenery is just unbelievable. Like the mm. the setting of of of, of um, setting it all in in uh, Iceland was was really interesting. And but for for the most part, it, it is just a simple family vendetta revenge story. It's Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Hard to uh, even the volcano is at the end and the oh my fire spitting. It's quite it's epic. Some great. It's some great visuals. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a great film. It's one of those way. I think I gave it four stars when I left the theater, but it was like I never really thought about it again. Though I probably rated a bit too high. Yeah, I sat on a three and a half. Right. I think I was like, I like this. There's a lot. There's some good things in it. Um, I think Anna Taylor Joy's performance is really solid. Mm. I think it's great um, ethereal, um, like cinematography and yeah, there's an, um, there's a lot of great stuff in there. But it is sort of you don't leave the theater with much to ponder on. 
which I think is, uh, sort of explains why I've never really thought about it again after yeah. seeing it. I think it's... And as someone who loved the Vikings show... Yes. Um, I wasn't seeing anything new in terms of gotcha. like... Even just the, the cultural exploration, yeah. Mm. I mean, this is probably definitely more visceral. I think there were points where it was quite... Uh, some of like the the tree of sort of life, the family tree cutaways and the 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 idea that Valhalla's in this the the depiction of Valhalla in the sky and and that sort of stuff was definitely more um explicit compared mm-hmm. to Vikings. It was a little bit more mystical. Sure. But Vikings also has uh the really good talking points about Christianity versus sort of the the like Nordic North Norse mythology. Yeah. So because there's that believability that both exist and both are just as valid in their existence mm. and whereas this is just it's just about it's Norse, Norse mythology is our absolute world mm. this is the only thing that um exists and i know anna taylor joy's character is a scandinavian who i doesn't like doesn't believe explicitly in norse mythology right. um but obviously we never see she's depicted in the norse um mythology not in her own sort of perceptions about where she talks about the connection to the earth and stuff mm. she doesn't speak of like freya and stuff like that but uh fight sequence was pretty cool but uh like i said it, it maybe for me because i do think the viking show for the most part is so good yeah following that world it almost feels like this was a little late to the to the punch for me personally okay. but i i know yeah. not everyone watched a lot of vikings so sure. they probably enjoyed northman a little bit more because they were exploring that cultural world, which Eggers does really well. Mm. I mean, I haven't seen the Vich, but it makes me want to see the Vich more. Yeah, because of how well he handled the lighthouse and how well I think he handled. Like, there's definitely consideration and research in his work, yeah. and you, that is irrefutable, which I really like. Um, but I think the the questions posed in the lighthouse um definitely more thought provoking and more mm. open to interpretation yeah it's something more open it's more ethereal and uh, yeah it's and even like the performances i think i mean they're normally like yeah they're great performances but i don't i don't like think back to any particular one they're just like i know willem dafoe was pretty crazy and i know bork was in it bork's coming to australia ethan hawk ethan hawk i mean exactly you know what i mean but it's like it's, it's a good cast working really well together as opposed to like the lighthouse where it's just like two powerhouse performances yeah. That really like carry that film as well as like the cinematography is just so um, interesting and and different and engaging and so I I would probably say the Northman it's probably his most like straightforward film in t- especially in terms of narrative in terms of just the basic revenge story and yeah and I hope Nosferatu sort of reclaims yeah the that's, lighthouse that's happening missing. now which is exciting so um overall. Yeah, for the hundredth film of the year slash docu series, <laughs> it was a pretty not, good one to not bad. to tick off. Um, and that's pretty much all I've caught, other than the film of the week. Oh, there you go. My, oh, actually, oh. I, I lie. Oh, um, to add to you our murder lied. mystery, uh, to add to our murder mystery talk for the second half of the show, because mm-hmm. obviously that is the film of the week. I did watch a murder mystery show. Oh. Um, in fact, uh, both seasons, I, I sat down with Lucinda, who had watched the first season prior, and then we sat down, and we just binged the whole second season yesterday. Wow. Um, and this is 
uh, on Disney Plus, uh, starring Martin Short, uh, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez. Oh. Only Murders in the Building. Yes, I've heard a lot about this. And it's really fun. It's sort of like, obviously, you know, Martin and Short have had an extensive five-decade career together, mm. um, and their chemistry is... Comedy chemistry is pretty immaculate. Um and Selena Gomez is, well, Selena Gomez, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, most of us know her as, what's she, Wizard, Wizard of Waverly Place. Well, yeah, so that Wizards, was her. Wizards of Waverly. Uh, she's a Disney person, uh, wavy, Disney girl. Wavy place. And, um, <laughs> and to be honest, I can't think of much else. I know we talked about, um, was it The Dead Don't Die? The Jarmusch oh, film. Oh, yeah, June Jarmusch, yeah. Where well, she I appears seen it briefly in that film. Okay. Um, but yeah, not a lot of not a lot of I haven't watched a lot of Gomez stuff, so it was an interesting cast like cast together, and I was like, oh, I wonder how this is going to work because it's about fifty years between, right, probably about forty between years between members. between these two senior cast members and this this quite young. It's fantastic. Their 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 chemistry works great. It's oh, a great excellent. murder mystery. The first I'm debating which season I liked more. Um, but overall, I'd say both were a solid, like, four stars. They were really fun, engaging, compelling. And I think that that was what they were going for. They weren't going yeah. for, like, the super dark, gritty detective. No, it was meant to be a funny comedy caper. So is it, like, different uh, mysteries per season? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, a murder cool. that happens in both, but the, in the same building. And then the <laughs> third... When, no, but when the season two right, finale okay. happens... Um, a, a, a character dies at the end of the season two finale, inferring a third season, but it's not in the building at that point. It's in a stage theater. Uh, but the other two that's are how it ties to this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, um, a, that's an interesting idea. I don't know to what extent it's being done. I guess you could look at things like Lost, I guess, which I haven't seen, but I assume this is where the gimmick for a TV show is that there is like a very simple mystery to solve that is just slowly unraveled to the point where, like, by season nine, it's just the most ludicrous thing in the world yeah. of all these things and how they have to tie together. I so guess a lot of TV shows are like that. And it's pretty good because they keep the two relative, like isolated enough, but there still is correlation between the two. I think characters have good growth and development. Um, it centers around, so the name of the show is the name of the podcast the three make together. Oh, that's so funny. It's a murder mystery <laughs> podcast that happens as, uh, and it's sort of like how they develop a fan base and, there's some great sort of ensemble cast performances from people like Tina Fey. Amy Schumer appears in season two, and I can't get through Amy Schumer, but <laughs> she plays a crazy enough character that she's consumable. Stings in the first season, which is pretty funny. Oh, nice. So there's there are good performances, um, and I, I would actually totally encourage people to watch it um, because I hope that maybe there's only going to be I reckon it will be one of these three seasons and done. So there'll be three really solid seasons and that'll yep. be, that'll be it. But it's pretty funny. And the chemistry between all three is like, ah, uh, but I enjoyed the whole way through both. Like yeah. it shoots really well. They're tight scripts. They're well thought out mysteries. They keep you guessing right to the end. So yeah. So that's exactly what you want out of, your, in the building. out of your whodunits and your meta mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. Keep you guessing all the way to the end. But then, yes, that's all I've watched in the last week. Fair enough. Well, I think, you know, we're on this uh, murder mystery groove. I reckon let's continue that groove, Zeke. It's time to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? 
This week of the show, Zeke, we're watching See How They Run. That's that then, sir. It's as good as a confession. It's not jump to conclusions, Constable. No, sir. The least we can do is talk to this other party. Yes, sir. Cocker Norris, sir. Tell me, did you write everything down in that little notebook? Only if it's important, sir. How do you know if it's important? Well, I'll just sort of put everything in as we go, and then down the line, when we know what's important, we'll know that it's already in the notebook. So you do write everything down? Yeah, everything. That's what I thought. In the West End of 1950s London, plans for a movie version of a smash hit play come to an abrupt halt after a pivotal member of the crew is murdered. When a world-weary inspector, Stoppard, and eager rookie constable Stalker take on the case, the two find themselves thrown into a puzzling whodunit within the glamorously sordid theatre underground. Amwada! Yes, Amwada. Amwada? Detective? It's Commissioner. Wes Anderson meets a whodunit. Constable. Yes. Detective. It basically is it, it's Edgar Wright and Wes Anderson had a baby. Constable. I'm just going through the rotational. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's um I will say, yeah, we might have given the wrong impression in, at the start of the show when we said uh, we wouldn't put it on our list and the blah 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 blah. It's a fun film. Yeah. It's it's a fun cast. Everyone's you know, having fun with it very clearly. I'm trying to remember the, you know what it was? The original cast duo that was meant to be before. I mean, the film was put on hold because of the whole Disney um, acquisition of 20th Century Fox. But I think initially it was going to be Hugh Grant and Kira Knightley who were going to play the two leads. And I think in terms of Wes Anderfying the whole thing, I think you definitely made the right choice for swapping over Sam Rockwell, Sasha Ronan. Um... But the whole cast is a lot of fun, and yeah, the, so. the visuals are all great. You can you can almost like smell the environment. There's a lot of great stuff going here, and I'm a little surprised because I wrote this down. So you have director George, sorry, director Tom George, and writer Mark Shampel, uh, Shambell, Shampel, who both uh, pretty much exclusively do British television. Like their background is British television. You've got shows like Bliss, Flight, This Country, a lot of this one. Uh, sorry, Defending the Guilty is another one. A lot of that was on uh, mm. BBC or Sky or um, these other British, um, you know, I was going to say television programs. These are television stations, I suppose you would call them. Yeah, and I think this might actually be respectively both of their first features. And, and for that, it's like, wow, this is, this doesn't speak directorial debut to me. No. Like, this is a very clean film edited and, and it's shot. It's like a great... I tell you, this would be like... You'd be so happy if you watched this on a plane. Oh, my God, yeah. You'd be like, that was a great film to watch on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what we're amounting to, because I feel like we've just like come out with like this praise of, like, oh, my God, this and that and this and that. Because, I mean, we want to preface how, I guess for me, how bad I feel for saying that I didn't really get much out of it. It's a popcorn Ultimately, movie. it's a popcorn film. Like I alluded to earlier... I kind of um, walked out with not uh, like I was saying for the Northman. I, mm. I, this is a film I'm not gonna have. I'm not gonna think about very much, and I think part of it is, is as much as I love 
there's a lot of uniqueness to it with like the split screens and there's a lot of great visual comedy in there self-awareness. And a lot of meta self-referential dialogue and the, and the characters were very self-aware and i mean the opening line is you've seen one you've seen them all yeah that sort of attitude towards it's- itself and to be honest, it's like, to go to stuff I was talking about the first half of the show with only murders in the building, they do a very similar thing. Like, characters would be like, oh, this will be a great point to end the episode, but they're referring to the podcast they're creating, but then the episode uh, ends on on, on the... Uh, and then I think even second season, they get even more meta. They're like, someone wants to... Amy, or Amy Schumer's character wants to uh, turn it into a TV show. Ah, the okay. podcast into a TV show. So it's like even more meta-commentary. And this has very similar things where it talks about lazy plot points like using three weeks earlier and then cutting immediately oh, yeah, to the two, titles. two, three the weeks legend. earlier. Yeah, yeah, You've like seen that. one, you've seen it all. Yeah, oh. which again, going back to what I said about She-Hulk, just because you acknowledge it doesn't automatically elevate your material. No. Um, I I think it's fun that it's sort of embracing that and 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 that that's what it's it's warning you the opening is a warning of saying you've seen one you've seen them all is in don't expect to walk away from this film getting anything other than what the trailer promised which is a fun who done it that loses a lot of its um not its charm but a lot of its intrigue after the first watch <coughs> sorry Jake is dying I poisoned his tea oh no. He shall be the butler lying on the couch at the end while things are on fire. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think uh, you don't get, um, like you said, it's a lot of fun. It probably makes you want to... I, I don't think they allude to having a second film in there, but you could easily see these two, Saoirse Ronan and Rockwell, coming back together and making a second film. Sure. Um, I think there's enough there. Um, but to be honest, it's it comes back to much like most cop whodunits Mm. you know whether that's from the wes anderson world which this is definitely borrowing some of its motif it's visual uh you know it's visual look it's it's like you said even it's casting with with brody and rockwell in there yeah and saoirse ronan you know they're they're very um wes anderson i mean some of them have appeared in multiple wes anderson films now Mm. so it it comes back to um that's clearly there, and and I do think that there's a bit of Edgar Wright in there with the repetitive British humour, okay. the Constable Constable. Yeah. I think that that's definitely a resonant feature. I mean, the Who Done It's in Hot Fuzz too. Yeah. Um, and it's a buddy cop film, which this is still a buddy cop film. Um, two two opposites. One's a sort of the uh, the old veteran, sort of sick of the path they've taken, is not brooding, but sort of alone in the world and yeah. the other is young um naive actually like loves the theater and all the um the industry taboos actually do go on to help her solve the investigation and i mean i think the key difference when the or the key point that's made with the two of them is when they first walk into the theater and she makes a joke about oh this uh this ruckus was when such and such died confusing him and then it's like oh no i'm referring to the character in the show i mean that's like the perfect representation of their dichotomy mm-hmm. or like the separation between them so like right off the bat you got like a great um yeah buddy cop scenario where they're two very polar opposite characters who mm. every now and then sort of come to the same emotional mindset or they come to learn a bit more about each other and obviously part of the ending is is them sitting down to see the play together so it's like there's a bit of a coming together moment there but you know it's interesting because they, they very 
lightly touch on their not their backstories but like what what are their private lives like and it's like we learn that um you know constable stalker is a is a mother she's a single mother to two kids and we learn a little bit about that backstory but otherwise we don't really get much of a glimpse into it mm-hmm. and then we learn a bit more about sam rockwell's character inspector stoppard stoppard what a great name um and then that how you know his unfaithful wife potentially ties into the case whether it does or doesn't um but other than that pretty much all of that's just to serve the plot and that part of the case and once that's done mm. we don't really learn more about them as people which is interesting it's pretty normal though for a whodunit i mean even look at you know um knives out we don't really learn much about craig's character at all it, often the inspector character is the one that's the most aloof in their characterization. They're mm. all, they're, at, at, at the end of the day, the inspector in a whodunit is, is the audience, really. Right. So the, the, often the inspector is this uh, all, all-knowing, smart, well-rounded world person, but they really are just the observational piece. And... In you know things like why why we probably elevate a film like Knives Out is because we see the murder happen mm. and that's a big part of it. We see the murder happen and then the it shifts from a who done it to we know who's done it. Anna Diarmas's character's done right. it. So now it's well, her so trying to think. hide hide the evidence. <laughs> and then yes, it does double back and double forth and then ends back at the traditional um, yep. who done it. But that second act switching gears is why that film is elevated and has that sort of anti-genre way, whereas this is a self-aware but traditional uh, whodunit mystery genre film. Yeah, Um, in in the sense that the whole driving question for the film is always about finding a whodunit and stopping this character or learning their motives, and it does play with that a little bit in the sense that I think, and I I guess we're well into spoiler territory Mm -hmm. at this point, but when you initially see the way the story's unfolding and the characters that we're meeting, you could kind of group all of the potential suspects into different categories. I, I do think I have to redact one thing that I actually think, and I do think this takes away, and I had an amazing experience. I was lucky enough to go watch this movie with an empty cinema, which oh, is great. Oh, excellent. Nice. I, took a, I, I had a with, very good theatre as well, actually. I went with I Lou, should, and it was just empty. Um, so we had a great time, like, watching, talking, watching, and talking. Yeah. And... But I had to. I had to say, the fact that I didn't find anyone really believable to the murder, because that's the thing. It's like I'll I'll concede there were multiple characters that could have done it in Knives Out, that have every, every reason to do it and sure. were compelling enough and believable enough. Yeah. In this one, although it wasn't overt who did it, I didn't find any of the characters they were investing to be capable of doing it, you know? Well, that that's the thing, because it's like you, you break it up into categories of there's the actors, yeah. there's the, I guess, like the producers, both the play producers and the film producers that are sort of all fighting, clamoring over each other to, to get this thing done, and they have different, um, differing goals, I suppose. Um, and then you got sort of the more internal uh, police people. So you got, you know, obviously Sam Rockwell and Saoirse Ronan, but even then you got their... Um, how am I forgetting the name? The the commissioner, and you start because your mind starts wondering. Okay, I wonder if it's like an inside job or it's one of the you know quote unquote good guys. Your mind starts wondering there because you're right. I think a lot of the 
the producers and the actors and that it's like uh none of them are really that obvious probably the most obvious one is the guy he has a fight with the writer but they can't because he's like the first person they talk to it's like that's oh, probably not him and it, end, and, and it ends and up being that. a person that doesn't fit into any of those categories yeah it's it's the bloody usher z it's the bloody usher yeah. <laughs> and the and the and you know it's like everything it's like the base that like and his motive's very clear it's because yeah it's very it is very funny. I know that they play that final climactic scene more for humor than actual the characters in danger. This character that's he's a bit half-witted and mm. and a bit slow and and he sits down and he puts his rifle and there's the weird eyes chicken game where they're like, "Oh, you oh, should grab yeah. the gun." But it it's or the when hand, Agatha the Christie hand creeping comes in into with, frame is excellent though. It is. That's it, great. Uh, <laughs> And they're definitely. Um, that's why. Why we say this is definitely way more in the category of light-hearted whodunit than a more serious, gritty true detective series, because <laughs> it's played more Matthew for comedy. Shows up. Oh, it's definitely played more for comedy. Like from the start, oh, the it's tone a straight is up comedy film. The, t- yeah. the tone is going for for comedy, and I do think that things like that slow hand creeping in frame are, are quite funny. Yeah. Um, I think the the. There are little janky bits, like like I said, I already previously mentioned. Getting those characters to the Agatha Christie house was very like, oh, we're just quickly getting out of the theater now, basically. Like, right. I thought that that wasn't, though. It was a fun place to have a finale. It was very, to try and imitate the mouse trap. So life imitates, like they're trying to mm. imitate the the play. It, it did feel like they could have brought Agatha Christie's character maybe in earlier to then propel that narrative sure. more convincingly to the finale because it didn't feel um it felt like oh and now all the characters are going to this house because this is where the be we're staging the finale mm. um but well, see that that's where the self-referential sort of balloon comes in yeah. or safety net is probably a better word where one of the characters makes that comment I'm pretty sure it's adrian brody says oh um, audiences they only remember the last 20 minutes anyway so it's almost like giving themselves a pass ultimately for what is yeah. a more exciting final 20 minutes and everything that leads up to that 20 minutes especially because it is all replicate especially the last few shots all completely replicate is that too smarmy story are we getting too smarmy at that point like too self-referential to the point where we're it's just a bit ridiculous like i don't know i mean the fact that that line's in there it's okay well they're obviously gonna have like an epic 20 minutes i don't know if it needed to make sense or not um I didn't think it was that contrived because it is like within the amongst the characters they're all kind of confused about oh why are we being invited here what's going on because well, they're sort just of happy like, to be going to Agatha Christie's house really yeah, like, they yeah. feel like it's a reward for their hundred plays like it's all ego based yeah that they're going I will say the one time again I wasn't really hard fixed on anyone I love the twist where it seems like Inspector Stoppard is the um, it's a good it's a good um, midpoint oh it's shift. a great midpoint yeah because it's like it all sort of click and i love that the film never like explicitly goes into all the things that connect him to the environment you just sort of see the picture of his ex-wife you think of the conversation I had earlier that um she was unfaithful eight months pregnant and in the back of your mind you're connecting that to the estranged boy that that leo adrian brody has you're sort of connecting all those dots together and the film gets bombastic when she sees the silhouette of like the the coat with the hat mm. But she never has that moment where she's like, I'm going to tell you why all these dots connect. And it's like, it was, I was, it was surprisingly... Well, it's the jumping to conclusions thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, and it also comes back to, I like that 
it's like that image of Stoppard with his ex-wife. Mm. We only get to look for it, look at it as long as Saoirse Ronan looks at it. Yeah. And um, and I find that really interesting because obviously that, that whole thing when Stalker's looking at it is the fact that she's only looking at it for maybe 10, 15 seconds. She doesn't pick it up and look at it or yeah. take it. So she's just going off sort of perceptile memory of this black and white photo. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, she's a plain-looking woman. Plain-looking woman. Well, that that's the other thing. In your mind, you connect all those dots because that's the information we've been fed. Yeah. But the thing we don't think about until until Sam Rockwell's like, that's not my wife. I've never met this person before. Is all you have is the writer, I'm forgetting the writer's name, describing this scene where like a boy and her mother, or his mother's walking down the hallway and we saw it as an audience but we're probably seeing the perspective that Constable Stalker's fought up in her head of that scene. It's also, and it's only then when you realise, like, you're associating this picture of a girl with with nothing else, just a minor and, description. And then it's also that uh, character profile. So, you know, you take Attenborough's character where he's, like, this flamboyant, larger-than-life writer who thinks yeah. he's better than everyone else. So him describing someone as plain... That could be anyone. <laughs> that could be anyone that's yeah. not flamboyant or larger than life. And to be honest, that's a vast majority of the world. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great the, point as well. Eyes of Attenborough. So it's, you know, it, and I find that's, that's that real thing where it's like not jumping to conclusions is it doesn't really... And the fact that every time she gets in the car, goes, oh, well, he must have done it. And he goes, no, <laughs> why? Like, uh, when she goes to arrest, um, what's her name? Just like immediately. <laughs> she comes and she's like, oh, I did it. I hereby arrest you. And it makes for an interesting dynamic because you've got this, these two characters who, and who have, who are a part of the police force. And to be honest, that we're in a, we're in a time where more people could join the police force without any sort of prior, training or way more limited training to as we what what we have today right so for this character to jump to sort of conclusions and be eager to please is is quite believable and this other character who's you know come back from the war and taken up this job yeah you know because this is 1952 so this is only seven years after the second world mm, war yeah so both well, these the, well the, the the aftermath of the war is present not only in their lives because like she lost her husband mm-hmm. or the father of her children to the war but even just like in the environment, like it's all seeped in there, and it's every character is fresh on their mind. After mm. one, that plays into a lot of the financial heartaches a lot of the characters having as well. So, no, it's it's cool, and I I mean the other reason as well is you've got um, the mousetrap, which of course is an actual play. I didn't really know any of this no. going into the film, so I did a bit of the research afterwards, um, and they actually talk about this is the longest running play in the world. And it ran continuously from 1952. So obviously that's where the that's mm-hmm. the main reason they placed this film here, not just because of the aftermath of World War Two, uh, but it ran from 1952 all the way through to March 2020, uh, where COVID shut it down for about a year. So uh, over 27,000 performances, which is insane. This kind of ties into the uh, you know we've been talking about Meta a lot in this film, um, not the Facebook company, but this idea of characters. Very scarcely actually talking directly to the camera. We talked about that earlier with other shows, but mm. the only time I remember them distinctly doing that is in the very ending. And this, we're not, uh, I'm gonna go, we've already talked a bit about the ending. Um, but when both characters turn around to the camera and pretty much say, you know, now you are an accomplice to this 
this murder in the story, so please do not share the word. Uh, the yep. word. Don't spoil it for other audiences, which is obviously a message to us, the audience. But it actually is a callback to the real-life mousetrap, which is famous for having the exact same ending, where that's how the play ends, is with the cast standing in front of everyone and basically imploring them to not reveal the twists to other audiences, which sort of leads into the whole spoiler culture. I know there was a yeah. whole thing with the people in charge of the play being angry that the ending was even on the Wikipedia page at all. Um, it is. I did check. But I also felt weirdly dirty for checking because even though this is a play in London, I'm probably not going to see anytime soon. Yeah. And I just watched a movie based around that play. But I felt dirty looking up the ending because there was this whole secrecy around it, this culture. The movie also doesn't actually reveal who who's the killer. No, the movie barely even touches the play. The yeah. actual dialogue of it, there's a tiny, tiny bit. But... I, I think that's out of respect to the play. I think Absolutely. that's where it actually comes from. I agree. So it's a good pickup. Yeah. The um, split screens. What did you think of the... the <laughs> Anne Lee Hulk split screens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's good stylism. I think it's like yeah. it's like everything. It, 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 this film is trying to... Whether it's through meta-commentary, it's self-awareness, it's, it is trying to be a little bit different and a little bit more stimulating visually. Sure. Um, Wes, Anders- Wes Anderson, and yeah, it comes back to the Wes Anderson motifs. The uh, this sort of plays into the the time, but yeah, I, I don't think it really. It has some fun sequence, like fun uses, but obviously, it, I definitely feel like it's a style mm. thing first and foremost. It doesn't set like really other than visually stimulate and make the the frame a little bit more dynamic. It doesn't do anything particularly. Uh, important yeah to the story my my thinking and i could be wrong but my thinking is this was an interesting way to sort of give the uh, in terms of telling the story through the edit because you could almost reveal too much information through the edit Mm -hmm. and my thinking it's not exclusively just for reaction shots but every time we did get a reaction shot that was cut into three parts it was like oh this is the film's way of saying we're not going to cut to specific reactions to give you an idea of whose you know, motive is being revealed or um, alluding to who the actual killer is. And it's, a, it's like cutting to split screen of several different reactions at once gives it that, I guess, replay value of you mm-hmm. can watch the movie again and watch different reactions, but also not knowing whose is more important than the other. Uh, but again, the film doesn't exclusively do split screen for reactions. They do it for action scenes as well and when characters are chasing each other. So I think you're right. It's probably just more of a stylistic thing. Um that, that was me sort of reaching for <laughs> why they might have been doing that. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about Knives Out earlier and sort of the differences mm-hmm. there in terms of the way they build tension and, and story arc. In terms of theme, because I have to admit, I'm not going to lie, the first thing I did when I got home from watching this film was rewatch Knives Out. And almost in that kind of way of, this film just made me want to watch Knives Out again because Knives Out is this, frankly even more energetic and entertaining and great characters and yada yada. I don't want to poop with this film at all. Of course. But the the difference I noticed, the two of them have their own conclusive, I guess, social commentary and themes spun into the whodunit mystery. Now, for Knives Out, it's about this idea of inheritance and who's owed slash earns things or who who is owned or earns it in terms of Marta, who we talked about earlier, that character in Knives Out. Um basically given this inheritance and it's like well should she renounce it to the family are the family owed because you know their blood and um 
it ultimately she prevails because she is a good person. Yeah. That's kind of the messaging of that film. And this film does a similar thing in regards to uh, insensitivity and the capitalization of the story of real people. And I don't think the film goes into that very much. I feel like Knives Out is peppered constantly throughout the film because they even go into the whole um, you know, race thing. Mm. Of like her, her mother is like an illegal deport and that, that kind of thing. Um, or illegal input, I should say. This one kind of feels like it's just wedged at the end when we finally learn, you know, who is the murderer, and he kind of goes on his spiel. It's that that's when it becomes evident of, okay, well he's he's upset because he's seen his story. Is it his brother that dies? I think it's his brother that dies in this real story. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and that's now being uh, profiteered through this stage play in the name of art, and it's now being prolonged because of a movie deal and the art, the show's success. And basically, the frustration of that is led is what leads him to killing people, um, which I think is a great um, idea to explore. Yeah. Especially nowadays, you've got shows like Dharma, which just came out recently, and that, that is a huge controversy because well, exploiting trauma, for- exploiting trauma, um, using the stories of victims and victims' families, even though they're still alive and didn't give permission to use those stories. Yeah, you got things like Netram, which we talked about more concretely last year, which I think I haven't seen Dharma, so I can't compare it, but. I think we we had a lot of a lot to say about Nitram in terms of why it was important to tell that story, and does it show respect to the victims? Which I I personally think it does in a lot of ways, um, especially by the ending or, or the lack of an explosive ending in that film. But you know these exist, and this will be an ever ongoing thing in art because people are always going to have to tell real stories with real victims. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really cool thing to touch on, albeit for maybe 15 minutes in I the was, last act. Uh, and I, I would say that, that for such a... Honestly, what could become a very poignant and memorable villain mm. or an, an antagonist, more more appropriately, because yeah. he's not villain. He's not villain. He's very actually very commendable as an antagonist in his motives and justification. But I feel like this film takes that and really doesn't go any doesn't explore it nearly as extensively as what they could exactly um, yeah because the character they've chosen um for that is treated and also is is in scenes that are very uh like he's treated like a simpleton he's not yeah. um he doesn't have any really compelling or memorable moments prior to um and I know that's the whole point. They're meant to like fade into the background. So when they're revealed at the end, you're like, oh, yeah, well, they were there this whole time. But yeah, the fact that that case only gets uncovered in a very quick montage at the end, just mm. to basically get Stalker and Stalker, uh, Stockard and Stalker to the final uh, conflict, the yep. final finale, um, who have had the falling out and then come together at the finale in the house. But basically then they have to kind of rush over why that character's there and mm. and i think the one problem is though funny that sequence with him playing with the gun it does take away the the potency of that that villain um, right and gets obviously treated for comedic effect now that's a, that's an opportunity cost they could have gone one route and they chose to go the more comedic route but yeah it's a it is a very interesting topic that maybe get covered in a different uh Different who done it? Yeah, what well, I think that's it because seriousness. once that became clear to me that that's what it was touching on, and it is something that is that is everlasting, ongoing in art, and especially today. I mean, Dharma is the most recent example, but there are plenty to be had. And I think, really, if they had hoed it all that more, 
I understand earlier in the film you got a lot of these producers like you know you got the um the film producer who's you know having the affair with the the secretary and that's like they're they're really cute together they're making me really like this affair couple (laughs) i don't i don't like that but the fact that he's obviously getting screwed out of a contract because he has to wait six months after the play is over but then people running the play they wanted to keep going because it's obviously such a success and despite a murder happening they yeah, they put their feet down and say no this must we must still open the curtain tomorrow night. Yeah. So it is there, it is peppered, but m- maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe if I rewatch it it will become more evident the ho- as the whole movie was playing that is what it was building to the whole time. This is the idea they're constantly trying to profit off this story despite how bad it is for in you know in the case of the Usher. I get the Usher's name. It is Dennis. Hmm. Dennis the Usher. Um, in terms of his story being sort of ripped off and, and profiteered, um, I think because leading up until that realization, you just think it's a bunch of, you know, Hollywood assholes trying to. I'm not. Most of them aren't from Hollywood, but. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, climbing over each other, trying to make these deals happen. And I guess that's the idea is that all takes precedence and is front page news as opposed to the real story that happens in the background. So I, I might give the film more credit for that because it is in there. And the more I think about it, the more it actually is sort of slowly peppered throughout the story. So, I, I might give them points for that. Would I bump my score a half stars league to three and a half? Maybe. <laughs> Just maybe. What was, your, what was your highlight scene, Zeke? Um, I'd have to say my highlight scene. Wow, that's mm. a tricky one, isn't it? Um, I think the opening sequence, the Adrian Brody-driven narration is quite mm. compelling it's quite an interesting hook um his death scene's quite humorous yeah i like the freeze frame on his terrified face yeah <laughs> i'm gonna go with that because it, it definitely sets the tone for the self-awareness of the film yep um it's a really good prologue to be honest it's very compelling very interesting and they're trickier because he's doing the voiceover you're like, oh he's gonna do the, he's gonna be the voice throughout the entire film Oh, no, he's dead. <laughs> it's a nice way to trick you, which yeah. I appreciated. And he has some good little sort of when, um, was it when Stoppard gets hit over the head with the shovel, has him like bartending. Yeah. Which is quite like, a shining moment, it almost felt like. Yeah. And and tell me if I'm wrong, Zeke, but when I was watching that scene, I kind of had this weird like, oh my God, I'm seeing Sam Rockwell and Adrian Brody in a scene together doing a performance. Yeah, which feels like it's never happened before. I, but I'm sure I, it has. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it has. I'm sure there's a film where they've both been in, but it, I, I kind of felt that special. Like a lot of heavyweights in this film, given, yeah. given how early this, you know, this Tom George. He probably isn't early in his career, but it's sure. Yeah. But it's yeah, his first feature and the, the cast that he's that he's arisen. I mean, it's a it's a 20th century for, or it's a Searchlight production, I should say, now under Disney's umbrella. But so that probably helped terms of funding and getting actors attached to scripts and but no i'm with you it's a, it's a great it's a valiant effort from a first feature director yeah about you as far as i can see um yeah i struggled as well there's a lot of great little visual humor comedic moments like um it's not even just so much the like leo storyboard which obviously replicates the, the ending sequence, yeah, yeah up, up to the pan over to the butler and everything but just even that classic visual humor of you know him doing like a slideshow and then there's the wrong picture in there it's like every sitcom in the world has done that joke <laughs> yeah um so there's moments like that uh the scooby-doo hallways 
uh, right before the second murder happens. I, I liked a lot of that stuff. Um, but for me, it probably, and we already talked this scene a bit, but it probably has to be the bar scene, you know, where our, our two buddy cops are sort of, you know, they're having a drink and they're sort of, you know, detoxing after a long day. And that's when we learn a bit more about them, about her being a single mother and losing her husband to the war, about him having an unfaithful wife. And it's probably led to his drinking problem. Like Mm. we learn a bit, but then of course that leads into the scene where she thinks he might be the murderer and just that like adrenaline boost in terms of narrative. And and you're right. It's probably a good midpoint. I I really like that a lot. Mm. I will say I was a little triggered. Okay. At the end, because Saoirse Ronan's front left tire does pop when she's driving in the snow. Felt a little triggered. Hurt. I was like, come on, man. So it hasn't been 24 hours yet. <laughs> See how they run is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Uh, it's a bit of a brief week, Zeke. A brief week. Brief, brief week. With Zeke. With, with Zeke and Jake. He's in there too. Coming to stand, we have Almost Famous, which we did uh, 20 or so weeks ago, whenever Great it was. Film. 1986's Labyrinth. Uh, Morbius comes to Prime. That's very exciting. We all got to sit down and watch Morbius together. Mm-hmm. We could have done it next week on the show. No, thank you. Do, no, no, okay. <laughs> Coming to Netflix, you have The Good Nurse, which sees Jessica Chastain as, you guessed it, a nurse. She discovers that one of her colleagues, played by Eddie Redmayne, it's been a while since I've seen him, is a serial murderer. Mm. So she is a good nurse. She's a good nurse. Not a great nurse. No, just good. Okay. That's fine. Marta from Nice Out, she's a great nurse. Mm -hmm. But Jessica Chastain's just a good nurse. And Eddie Redmayne's a bad nurse because he's just killing people, apparently. That's Like Harry Styles. (laughs) 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 Yeah, why didn't... I'm surprised Harry Styles didn't play this role. Would be perfect for it. He's ready to go. (laughs) And also coming to Netflix, you have Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which is a horror anthology series as told by revered horror creators. And coming to binge, you've also got the season one finale to House of the Dragon. You haven't been watching this, have you? Oh, I forgot to talk about this the first half of the show. I have. Ah. Watched all nine episodes. Wow. So I just completely missed talking about it the first half. I'll oh, finish fair. it. I'll well, talk about it next week. There you go. Watch I'll the talk- finale. Talk I'll about it next week. Talk about it all next week. Perfect. And I didn't realize this Ring to Power is already, the season's already finished. Yeah, I'm going to try and get through that in the next week, too. So oh, perfect. Talk about the two fantasy mm-hmm. titans. That's the plan. In one go. Perfect. So they'll both be wrapped up by the end of this week, uh, which is very exciting. And coming to cinemas this week, you have Bros, which these two men, Bobby and Aaron, with commit- commitment problems, attempt a relationship together. Zeke, is this like us? We're bros. But we don't attempt it. We just have it. <laughs> I'd hope after nearly four years... We would have hit that on the head um, at this point, being bros. Nearly four years. Four years on the podcast. I reckon... Oh, I see what you mean. And then probably five and a half. I reckon we're closer to five. I mean, five years ago, I knew you. Yes. We knew of each other. We talked. Became bros nearly five years. In fact, I think I guest starred on the Blue Velvet podcast five years ago. An elite podcast from a different time. A different different time. A different world. It's all right. I'm going to... We're going to get Jack Bet to make a similar shirt for this podcast. Oh, would be great. very good. That'd be great. I'd love to see it. Also coming to cinemas, you've got The Woman King, which is a historical epic taking place in the kingdom of Dahomey. Dahomey? Dahomey. 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 During the 18th and 19th centuries, and it stars Viola Davis 
as a nan- Naniska. Naniska. So, uh, it looks good. She looks she looks very badass in, in the poster. Nice. So, they're going to kill Dope. some folk. Dope. There you go. Here for it. Everything in Between is an Australian film that explores the life of an alienated teenager who learns to find a meaning and purpose through the pain of love and loss. It kind of just looks like a moodier version of of when when Mason was like 16 years old in boyhood. Like even more moodier than him. Nice. It's, uh, Love me some moody. <laughs> shall see. And finally, we have Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is finally going wide. And Luna Lita Villa screening as part of the British Film Festival. The Banshees of Inner Sheeran. It's the latest film from Martin McDonough, who of course did In Bruges and Free Billboards, both films I adore. And it stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as lifelong friends who find themselves at an impasse. I am very excited for this. Very exciting, yeah. He's a god of a director, Martin McDonough. So I've got to get on to that. That's it. Has everything coming to streaming in cinemas this week? Lovely. Well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. <laughs> our film of the week? Not film of the week. Film next week. Next ah! week. Next week on the show. Oh, thank God. I, I, I thought I had to... I didn't have much time to prepare, Zeke. <laughs> but, Jake, <laughs> what are we watching next week on the show? <laughs> i got to rewatch it. Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Reservoir Dogs. Put the gun down! Hear your names. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared because I fall off the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. They hadn't it done. What I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. You're acting like a first-year thief. I'm acting like a professional. Six criminals hired to steal diamonds do not know each other's true identities when pulling a heist. And when it all goes wrong, fingers are pointed at who might be the undercover officer. There's a, speaking of directorial debuts, feature directorial debuts, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. We're still in the month of October for now. Mm. And I guess we chose to do this over Death Proof. So here we are. Ah. Uh, um, yeah, this episode will land on the 31st. Yeah. Uh, so. Sorry, mate. We could have, could have done Death Proof. Could have done Hateful Eight. <laughs> this one's got plenty of violence in it too, though. That's true. I mean, hey, look, I'm. I, this was my suggestion mm-hmm. and way back in episode 30. So speaking of four years ago, we put it out on a poll. It was the first poll we ever did on Instagram for the show to e- either do this film or Pulp Fiction. I think, I imagine Pulp Fiction won by like a fraction, a hair of a fraction or something. Yeah. It's a real flip of the um, coin. Yeah, so I figured, you know what? It's been a long ass time. I've only seen this film the once years ago. So I'd love to give it another go. Quentin Tarantino's start. The start of it all. It's very exciting, but uh, we could have done Death Proof, which is a highly underrated film, but it's fine. It's fine. Then we, we look at the posters, Zeke. We'll just, we'll we're go just off taking them off time. slowly. Yeah, one by one. Slowly. We've done well, a few. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Reservoir Dogs.